Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hello and welcome to Teen 1D, the podcast for teenagers and young adults living with type 1 diabetes. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medicine advice or treatment. My guest for today is Will Hall. Hi, Will. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. Thanks, Jacqueline. It's great to be here. All right. Let's just get a little bit of background on you. Where did you grow up and how old were you when you were diagnosed with type 1? I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts. It's a little town about 40 minutes outside of Boston. And I was diagnosed at the age of 11. In fact, my diversary is coming up in the near future. I remember I was diagnosed on Martin Luther King Day back in 1987. So how do you manage your blood sugar? Do you use pens, a pump, a CGM or closed loop system? And has this always been the way that you've done it? Well, first, let me start with what I'm doing now. This is the coolest thing, and I've I've been doing it for about four years now, but I am using the DIY closed-loop system called Loop. So I'm using my Omnipod Dexcom G6, and they talk to each other through the Loop app on my phone with a little help from a device called a Riley Link that hacks the Omnipod and lets all these devices talk together. Do you like that system? I'm trying to look into getting one of those for myself, actually. Oh my gosh. It was a total game changer for me. I've been a sort of a Omnipod devotee for a long time because I'm pretty athletic and like to play sports and get out there and be active. And whenever I tried or tested a pump that had the tubes, it always kind of got in the way. And so I've, I've loved using the the tubeless pump Omnipod, uh, but loop huge game changer for me. I mean, I used to wake up, I want to say two, three times a night from blood sugar fluctuations and the closed loop system that I'm using now allows me to sleep through the night almost every single evening with a few exceptions. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And of course the best part is, you know, my blood sugar hovers around perfect all evening. So that makes the sleep much more fruitful too. Yes. That sounds fantastic. I can say just using the Omnipod system, that is And I do have a Dexcom as well. That is not where I currently am. Mm. So I'll definitely have to look into that. Call me. I've set up about 70 people on the DIY system. All right. I might have to take you up on that. So when you were growing up, did you know any other kids or teens who had type one or even adults too, I guess? You know, sadly, no. I was in fifth grade when I was diagnosed and I knew nobody in my class. I knew nobody in my entire school who had it. In fact, um, we had a a great nurse at the time who would walk me through and help me throughout that process when I was learning how to manage my diabetes. And um, she didn't know one other student in the whole school who had type one. So I was the only person in my entire school as far as I knew. And I never, during my entire upbringing in Andover, never met another kid with type one when I was under the age of 18. So it was a pretty lonely place for a while. Sorry about that. Did you then get to meet more people with type one when you went to college? 
Yeah, I did meet one friend who I made just sort of by happenstance um, that had diabetes in college. So that was a nice connection to have. I also did a few extra things along the way, like I attended a diabetes camp and stayed in touch with one of those friends. I wasn't really the camp type of guy growing up, though. But meeting one other person that I could connect with for um, for a longer period of time and just talk to afterwards, that, that was valuable for me. So I slowly started kind of building my little type 1 diabetes community that way. But then when I started volunteering for JDRF more robustly, like in my late 20s, did I, did I start meeting people? And then, you know, ever since then, I've known a ton. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. After you left Andover, what was the next step for you? Good question. So I I went to UMass Amherst for college. And then after college, I moved home for one year. But I had a good friend who lived in Florida and I had gone down to visit. And and he lived in the Tampa Bay area. And when I went down there, it was midwinter up in New England. And it was, you know, like 10 degrees out and we had snow for two months in a row and I was dying of the weather. So I, I go down to visit him and it was like, you know, 75 and sunny and just heaven. And so I said, OK, this is the place for me. So I have to move here one day. So basically, when I was 23 years old, I want to say I ended up moving to Tampa and then lived here until I was about 30 years old between Tampa and Miami. So when did you become involved with JDRF? So I started as a volunteer when I was in my late 20s. So I did a walk and I was in Tampa. That was more of just participated in it. When I became more involved was after I left Tampa and moved to San Francisco. And I started getting more involved as a volunteer out there back in my early 30s. And that was going back about 13, 14 years or so ago now. So what is your current position in JDRF? I am the National Director of Leadership Giving. And my job is to basically make sure our top supporters in my area, which is Florida and the southeast part of our country, make sure our top supporters are feeling well-informed about the research that we're funding and all the exciting advancements that are coming down the pike. And of course, to raise funds so that we can keep funding great research and see more and more breakthroughs in the years ahead. And just at a separate note, what do you like best about living in Tampa? So I lived out in San Francisco for like 14 years. My wife and I lived out there. We raised two kids. After a while, we were talking about, should we move back to Florida? Because that's where my wife's family's from. They live in Sarasota, just about an hour from Tampa. Really, um, we had just talked about moving back. But the thing that really prompted our recent move back, and I've been here a year now since returning to Tampa, um, was COVID. It kind of changed everything from a work perspective and a livelihood perspective out West. Um, Her family's all in Florida. My family's all in the East Coast. And so that was a main reason we also had two kids. So it was time to kind of get closer to family because you never knew during COVID when the next time you'd be able to see them would be. So I love being close to family. That's proven to be really great for us and our kids. They now get to see their uncles and cousins and grandparents regularly, but you can't deny the weather. I still love so much more here in Florida. And there's sort of a casual pace to uh, Tampa and Florida in general that I like a lot. So those are some of the main things. Yeah. And then can you tell us some more about JDRF's current research projects? 
So JDRF kind of looks at research in two buckets, if you will. We have investments in what we call the improving lives portfolio, and then we have investments in the cures side of things. So improving lives is technology, therapies, or drugs that will improve your lives, complication investments. So if you have diabetes for many years or a few years, it doesn't really matter. You can experience different complications after a while. So we also invest in drugs or treatments that will help you not get those complications at some point in your life. And then lastly, in the improving lives portfolio, we also focus a lot of attention on the psychosocial aspect of living with type one diabetes and the challenges that, you know, folks like you and I face when we're growing up or working or going to school. And we try to make sure that people like us have the resources we need to talk to somebody who can understand kind of what we're going through. That's one half of the JDRF research side, improving lives. The other side, which everybody gets really excited about is the cures side of things. And there's not going to be one cure eventually. So I used to think, you know, who's going to invent that cure? That's going to be so exciting. But we've started to talk about it in the plural form. So if you talk to anybody at JDRF, they'll say, we're working on cures. And we're do, and we call it that because there are so many different angles or shots on goal we're taking with our cure research. There's some therapies and some drugs we're investing in that will prevent the disease from ever happening. So if you're maybe your parents had diabetes or you had it and you have a child one day and they're more prone to getting it, If we know that in advance, we can give them some treatments to prevent them from getting it. And then there's other cures where maybe you've lived with diabetes for 40 years, so you might need a a beta cell transplant, and that comes in many different forms, but it could be an implantable device that goes under your skin, or it could be cells that are released into your body that are edited so your body doesn't reject them. But those are the two main areas of our research focus and there, there's lots of exciting stories in each each area of our portfolio. So one of the things that you mentioned that spoke out to me was the cells that the body doesn't attack. How does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. So with our autoimmune disease, we know the body looks at our beta cells and it instantly recognizes them as defective or foreign because you maybe you got a virus or you you there was something along the journey your body took where the immune system said those cells aren't working properly. And it's kind of hard to explain on a podcast, but if you imagine when you get a virus, like everybody, you know, who's getting COVID now, or maybe the Coxsackie virus is a, is a regular virus we all get, um, your body goes through this trauma, if you will. And then those cells are overworked. So they start working too, too much and too fast and too hard. And after a while they get tired and the immune system sees those cells working too hard. And then it says, you shouldn't be acting like that. So we're going to attack you and kill you. And then the immune system decides to kill all the beta cells. So now we're we're investing in products that are like encapsulation devices that are very thin and small and go under your skin, but they house thousands and thousands of beta cells. So the body now has a protective barrier around these cells so that it won't reject them. The other side or another way we're investing in this is through cells that can be just put in there without an encapsulation device. And some cool research that we found out recently around gene edited cells, people have heard the term CRISPR. It's a computer program that allows you to 
modify your gene so that it so that the immune system doesn't think it's defective. And then you have these cells all of a sudden that are not rejected by the immune system and it can live a happy, healthy life. And so those are kind of our two main shots on goal. There's a couple other areas that are a little more complicated, but those are the two exciting ones that are on the near horizon. Thank you for sharing that. That's just fantastic to hear about. Yeah. So you mentioned that you really enjoy being active. If you know that you're going to have activity throughout the day, is there anything specific that you do to take care of that? Or with the closed loop system, is that easier now? Oh, God, Jacqueline, it's so funny you bring up this question now, because yesterday I was invited to play golf with a friend of mine who has type 1 diabetes. And it was our tea time was at 1052 a.m. And I remember thinking to myself, "Okay," at eight something, I said, "Okay, you need to cut down your basil in half for the day so that when you start playing golf, you're not going to go low in the middle of the round. But of course, like I do 90% of the time, I forgot to stop, you know, adjust my basil well in advance because it's just hard to predict, right? Um, so my my other way to sort of counteract that and, and still be active is I carry around packs of cliff blocks wherever I go. And I like cliff blocks and, you know, it's like a, a brand, you know, the cliff bars, they make these little chewy blocks that are gummies and they come with only seven carbs per gummy. So it's a great way to sort of micro dose your sugar throughout the day. Cause you know, you're only getting seven grams and it's not too much to really spike you too high. And it's just enough to kind of keep you steady. So in a perfect world, I try to adjust my basil. And when I don't think of it, I always have a backup snack on hand. Yes. And then I know one of the things that definitely affects my numbers, I came out of final speak a couple of weeks ago is stress that have any effect on you? Totally. Yeah. It still does to this day. So probably like you. So you talk about finals, preparing for the tests, actually taking the exams. Um, And there's weird stressors that I never even thought before that would cause my blood sugar to rise. Like flying on a plane for six hours, going back and forth to visit my family on the East coast. I mean, what gives, who knew that sitting on a plane for that long of a time would just elevate my blood sugar. So there's that, there's things like work conferences where you just have to sit down for eight out of 10 hours during the day and you're not walking around or as active as you normally are. So those, it doesn't, sometimes they don't feel like stressful things, but it's putting stress on your body that's causing your blood sugar to elevate. So yeah, I feel that all the time. Oh, and I'll say one more thing. Even though I've been with JDRF for five years and I've done a hundred meetings with very impressive donors and supporters and researchers all over the country, I still always get a little nervous because I want to be on my game. But before those meetings or right as those meetings are starting, I, you know, I often see my blood sugar spike. So I kind of, in addition to having snacks to treat lows, I also like to use a Fresa now, which is an inhalable insulin that's super fast acting that can really help me if I'm kind of going up to 200 and I just need to bring it down quickly. So with the Afresa, if I said that correctly, how do you dose that? It's a lot different than normal insulin. One unit of Afresa equals like two and a half units of regular insulin. So you kind of just have to figure out how many carbs 
equals one unit of a Fresa for you. So for me, it's roughly 18 to 20 carbs worth for one inhalation of a Fresa. But in, a Fresa comes in cartridges. And if you haven't seen it before, it's like a little cartridge that you put in a little plastic inhaler and they can come in four units, eight units or 12 unit doses. So depending on the person and the carb consumption, you can get a dose that usually is customized for you. That's fascinating. I'm just, everything that you're saying is just very interesting to me. And I'm just trying <laughs> to take it all in. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about a Frezza and the the and we talked about the closed loop system I'm on. All these technologies together, I think we'll see this in the next few years. We're gonna have, you know, five or so closed loop systems available that'll be FDA approved. We're gonna have, we now have a Frezza, and that will it's going through FDA approvals for adolescents right now, too. So if you're ages 17 and up, you can use a Frezza. But if you're younger than that, you still can't use it without a um, override prescription from your doctor. So pretty soon, I think we'll start seeing people use closed loop systems, a Frezza, and then maybe some other therapies that can keep your blood sugar very level. And we can talk about that if you want to at some point. Yeah, no, I'd love to hear more about it. Okay. So I'll give you one example. There are these products we call disease modifying therapies. There are numerous therapies we're investing in, but one of them that is really easy to describe and sounds cool is called a SGLT2 inhibitor. And it's like a pill. You take the pill in the morning and then let's say your blood sugar is hundred and then you see it starts steadily going up over the next few hours. And then it hits roughly 160. And this pill recognizes when your blood sugar gets to that point. And instead of you having to take extra insulin, which you and I both know can cause you to have lows and fluctuate a little bit, it actually, this pill, this SGLT inhibitor allows you to pee out the excess sugar in your urine. So you don't have to have more insulin on board and the sugar just disappears out of your system automatically. So that means you will have to take less insulin over the course of the day. That means your blood sugars will be much more in range for a much longer period of the day. And when you add all of these things up, it means much more time in range. It means you're a lot healthier and you can handle those stressful situations with a lot less fear. That is crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And they're already approved in Europe. So we're just kind of going through the arduous process of getting wow, that approved here. Wow, that's even more exciting then. Yeah. And so I think um, we're about to reach the end here. So I'm going to just ask you a couple of more questions. Sure. Can you think of any ways in which type one has had a positive effect on your life? Oh, well, the number one for me has been um, my job at JDRF. You know, I, I was in... The fundraising space in the higher ed world for eight years or so prior to JDRF. And it was a very nice experience. But after my last job, I said to a friend of mine who was a recruiter in the in the not-for-profit space, I said, you know, I want to do something that really touches me in the heart, that makes me feel really good at the end of each day. And I'd love to do something in the diabetes space. I was living in San Francisco at the time, so I thought if there was a job opportunity, it might be working at Stanford or UCSF, where they do a lot of great um, type 1 diabetes research. But out of the clear blue, about nine months after I spoke with my friend who was the recruiter, he said, hey, guess what? A job just became available out on the West Coast, and it's the head of major gift fundraising for JDRF. And I, I thought to myself, this, this, is, this is not even something I could get. This is too dreamy. But 
you know, sometimes you just got to give it a go. And I applied for the job and went through the interview process. And sure enough, I was hired. And I've got to tell you, the last five years at JDRF have been the most rewarding and satisfying time in my professional career. I feel like the conversations I have with families who are dealing with diabetes, I, I can tell them stories about the products we're investing in and I can show them myself as an example of how when you use them the way they're supposed to be used, you can live a much happier and more fulfilling life. And I get to share these technologies and tips with people like yourself and others all over the country. And there's nothing better. Like just an hour ago or so, I got a text from a dear friend who has a daughter who's in her early teen years and she's got type 1 diabetes and she's just started using DIY loop. And she said, you know, I've had two nights in a row now where my daughter's blood sugar hovered around 100 all night. And she's like, I might not have to wake up again to monitor every night. And she's been doing that for the last 12, 13 years. So it's great for the people who live with diabetes. It's also great for the parents because they don't have to live in fear anymore. So this job has been a big win for having type 1 diabetes. It's really allowed me to work in a space I feel good about. Yes, I'm so happy that you get to do that. If you could give anyone advice, either as a teenager or young adult or anyone living with type one, what would you say? Mm. Well, first I'd say living with type one diabetes is tough. And even if you're a parent or even if you're somebody who likes to be super helpful until you have the disease yourself, you really never know exactly how difficult it can be to navigate all those little situations. So So people like you out there, I just say, go easy on yourself. You know, sometimes you just have to take a break and know that you're dealing with an autoimmune disease that can kill people, can cause seizures. And and so you don't always have to be as gung-ho as everybody. You don't always have to finish when everybody else finishes. Like if you need a break, just take it. You know, it'll be better for you, your body and your mentality in the long run. But the other bit of advice I'd give is just, Things have come so far in the last decade and certainly the last five years. Um, When you look at me now and I'm using Loop and Afreza and these new therapies, when I was diagnosed, I had to pee on a test strip back in 1987 to tell me my blood sugar. And if you were in the good range, you were anywhere from 80 to 180, but you didn't know if you were 80 or 180. So you just had to hope you were guessing you were the right level. So think of that and then think of where we are today. And man, it's just, we're in such a better place and people like you can, you know, leave the hospital or a couple months after being diagnosed and they can be on all this great technology. I mean, that's, that's a much better place than we used to be. Truly. And one of the last things I would like to hammer home is that every one of our guests who is on here is much more than having type one. And so for my last question, I'd like to ask if you have any recommendations for our listeners for books, movies, or TV shows, or any other things that you do in your free time. Well, if we're sticking with the diabetes theme here, I will tell you that my favorite blog is Diatribe. It's uh, by a company out in San Francisco. Kelly Close is the founder of that company, and she has this super gifted team of folks who go out to all the diabetes research talks all over the world, and they give an excellent summary about what's coming down the pike. So it's called diatribe.org. That's where I go for a lot of my you know, regular diabetes updates. 
And I have two little kids. So, you know, right now we're going through, uh, so just for fun, I'm mixing it up here, but you know, we're, we just went through the whole Harry Potter series again. And then that translated into going through the whole star Wars series again. And then we just started Boba Fett. So, you know, I'm all over the place. I'll do everything from professional diabetes, reading and watching to checking out the old school films, which is kind of a fun thing to do right now while we're all sort of hunkering down with COVID. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much for be- agreeing to be on here today. Oh, Jacqueline, thanks for having me. And thank you for everything that you do for our community. We need so many oh, people thank like you. out there doing this great work. So. That's all for today. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, or just want to say hi, don't hesitate to reach out. You can email me at teen.teen1d at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at teen1d podcast. If you like my podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. It really does help me out. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to tune into next week's episode. Have a great week. Bye.